Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather, political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam, and this is Hugh. Woo! <laughs> and we're here to talk wooing. Yeah. And news and politics. Our new bi-monthly podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we took a little bit of a break. Got yeah. a lot going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I've said that like three times. Last yeah, no, episodes, it's, but it's, it's it like happens. a lot's happening at the moment. Like, because you're, you're moving. I'm moving house, yeah. And, like... My wife's so busy, mm. and yeah, sometimes it feels mean to like kick her into the basement <laughs> while we record because we can't you don't, handle a woman's gaze. You don't have, yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, but I reckon yeah, we should be back to normalish. Yeah, yeah I, I move so. in two weeks. Yeah, so uh, I mean, we'll probably do something next week. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, we can. Be, we'll be. Yeah, yeah, everything's all good. Yeah. But you know everything's I, fine. Everything's do fine. not cancel your subscription. <laughs> Everything is. Do not listen to the lies told about us on the iTunes by our enemies, by our enemies on the drowned in sound forum and the <laughs> something awful forum, which seem to be the two forums that like mention us. We were also mentioned. They lie. On a, what do they say about us? I don't think they lie. They just mention us. Oh, okay. If you Google it, oh, okay. and uh, there's a really old reference on a like a. Pakistani cricket forum? Fantastic. Just saying, oh hey, this podcast. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, um, we're always talking about cricket. Maybe we should talk more about cricket. Oh, I don't know Christ, anything about cricket. No. I don't know what well, I know cricket. too much about cricket. No. Like, which is uh, which is how it's played. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's too much. That's way too much. Yeah. But yeah, so this week and the last couple of weeks, we've had the Tory leadership election is like, it's down to two oh, now. Oh yeah, yeah. We're down to two between... Slowly whittling down my notes as... Leadership <laughs> contenders are discarded, and I don't have to think about them anymore. Yeah, it was only for them to spring up assaulting women. <laughs> yeah, I did like um, for the last vote where it just ended up with where um, Gove was gotten rid of, and now we're down to just mm-hmm. Hunt and Boris. Boris and Jeremy Hunt. I can't see Hunt lasting the month. Well, no, of course he won't. He'll just give up at some. We point. when we went through the leadership contenders, there were two that were roughly the same, and it was Gove and Hunt. Mm. Long term. Uh, cabinet ministers each manage to app, like drive the people who they're responsible for to uh, to drink <laughs> because of their policies mm. widely hated hunt by the NHS generally mm. uh, gove by teachers and things like that and but they have roughly the same baggage I mean Michael but, Gove's look, marginally probably more belligerent he's more war hungry and he's more culture war hungry as well yeah as but, as exposed but, by look, his jeremy hunt's a very different man like since we last did an episode he came out in favor of reducing abortion time limits <laughs> oh actually yeah so he he's willing to do a culture war as well yeah um yeah. but yeah so like in the last vote there was um the um whips had lots of proxy votes yeah like there were reports of some of them having like twenty votes, <laughs> because in the last bit that the M- that the Tory MPs could vote on for who would be the leader of their party and prime minister, a big chunk of them couldn't be asked because they needed to get to Ascot, <laughs> which is so Tory. Well, so you never know. You've got to wait. Um, there's two kind of opinions on when Ascot starts. Um, some of the imams are in Egypt, some of them are you know, in Iraq, and they, they, they never agree. So you've got a split in the Ascot goers yeah. as to when Ascot actually starts and then when it finishes, you know? Yeah, that's right. that makes sense. Um, but also there was like there was the thing with the rumours about um, vote lending 
and Boris manipulating things to make sure that he got the easier a, opponent. Yeah. Um, which I could see them try to do that. But also the bloke who was doing this manipulation was Gavin Williamson. And I think there's also a really good chance that Gavin Williamson tried loudly and failed, but just managed to spread rumours that he was doing it because he's just <laughs> such a gormless idiot. Because he is. I I mean, I watched, um, I watched the BBC one and then decided to go back and watch the, the Channel 4, like mm. leadership debate. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't watch political telly that much because, I mean, why would I? Mm-hmm. Um, all the answers are from a Lithuanian who died in prison in the 70s. <laughs> all political answers. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I, I watched it and it's like, uh, who do you want to win? Do you want to... The man who's afraid of his own eyelids, <laughs> the man who can't stop moving, or the haunted Victorian doll. I love which did, one. I did love in the BBC one how Rory Stewart doesn't know how to sit on a stool. I I had a great when, he's normally when used I to was sitting watch- on his ventriloquist owner's knee when i was watching um <laughs> having learned a lot that i didn't know about rory stewart over the last month or so yeah. i came up with a Most great electrified man in british politics <laughs> it doesn't matter what your brexit policy is no um i come up with a great name for him having known what he's been up to over the last 10 mm. years he's dt lawrence <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't stop moving he was no. he was so high yeah he did seem that way he was fucking on it it was um yeah the the Channel Four one was, I like I was drifting in and out of consciousness watching that one. Um, that was, was that was a. I mean, there was a format problem with both of them, and especially the Channel Four one. Well, what are you supposed to find out? I mean, uh, look. Yeah. Let's 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 start with the small problem of, in that format of 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 audience asking questions and all that. What are you supposed to find out? There is nothing you're supposed to find out. It's the same as question time. You're supposed to posture and come across as louder than the others. Yeah. It's exactly the same in the US election. In a larger sense, what were these supposed to... They were treating them as if they were essential to the democratic process. Oh, yeah. They need to come under scrutiny because it's journalists like, ah, like it. scrutiny. And it's like, do you just want an American... Like, we've known for years that they want some kind of... Yeah. They want a primary system, yeah. is what they want. They want wall-to-wall political TV mm. to put on to justify public, like uh, performing a public service, performing mm. public scrutiny, and they want it to go on for like a year at a time, oh, God. as opposed to the day-to-day actually kind of covering yeah. Parliament. BBC Parliament got its funding cut, didn't it? So they're yeah. not. Uh, they're, are they going to get rid of the channel? I can't remember. Yeah. There was something about that. And it's like, they don't want to do that because nobody watches it. No. And nobody can be bothered to analyse it either, no. properly either. Um, what they want are big, showy, one-off game shows. Yeah. Yeah, they really do. I did... Um, yeah, the Channel 4 one, it was... Yeah, I, I can't Too many people. It. Yeah. Way too many people. And then the BBC one, it was like, would you like the guy who wants to... who will eat you, like, feet first... <laughs> the guy who will eat you hands first. The guy who will eat you face first. Have you been looking at my internet history? <laughs> and then there's the guy who will eat you, but he can't afford cutlery. <laughs> there's the man who doesn't look like he belongs to be there. He needs to be there um, because he's a retired music teacher who's had to resign in, ris- in disgrace. <laughs> that was at least two of them. Yeah. The worst thing is all of these marvellous illusions all of these wonderful images we're conjuring in front of your very ears <laughs> are applicable to almost all of them <laughs> yeah yeah it was unbearable but then there's the main thing that happened it was like there was those there were the two questions there was that the was it an imam 
There was an imam who there was said, an, an imam do, who, do words have consequences? Do words have consequences? Aimed at Boris for um, his anti for him being a racist. Marks, remarks. and he sort of guffawed and trottled and yeah, um, and didn't answer. And all of them sort of didn't answer. And then they then well, they turned the fire on uh, Jeremy Corbyn and uh, Gove did his traditional thing of like he is an unrepentant Marxist, like he said about um, Hobsbawm after yeah. I think either just before or just after he died. I think he's going on about like, it just after he he should he should uh, reflect on a lifetime of or he should weep hot hot tears yeah. for a lifetime of wickedness. And it's like shut the <laughs> fuck up, you fucking fake. Protestant preacher man. It's not yeah. 1649. You're not a fucking leveller. But then, like, their response, like, the general, the response of the right and the state. Oliver Crom wrong. That's his yeah, name. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, is to go through, dig through this imam's Twitter history to find him being anti Semitic, up for debate. Yeah. Um, but also, are they blaming the BBC for allowing him to be on? No, no talk about the question. Yeah. Because that doesn't matter anymore. The man no. dared to ask a question, so let's let's go into him. And then the other one was um, a man I can't remember his surname, but you know everyone knows him on Twitter. Yeah. Um, who they got suspended from his job? Um, he asked a question. So that so the the, the actual he asked for an election. The, the, he asked about whether there, there there should be an election. Right? Yeah. And the first story that came out was Labour Abharachik, and I absolutely yeah. love them borrowing you know ex-soviet phrases and yep. shit like that it's fun um saying as if his opinion was any less valid for the fact that he was a member of the labor party or worked for the labor party or no um, it's very important that 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 gets told and it gets brought up and we get told to dis- dis- just ignore what he actually asked or ignore any of his opinions because of his affiliation to the labor party in much the same way that the press always rounds on Tory councillors on question time. <laughs> you know, every week, it's what happens. Every Friday, yeah, they announce which ones were Tory councillors. And, you know, there's three or four. And everyone, like, shouts at them, goes through all their Twitter history, finds stuff that's bad, and then they get suspended from their job. That happens, doesn't mm. it? Yeah, it's completely. That happens all the time. Um, yeah. it, well, it was Guido Fawkes um, who Gleefully retweeted... Like, uh, they they took a screenshot of him responding to Candace Owens, yeah. the Turning Point USA person, commentator, I don't know, um, of him making a joke about, uh, and Hitler Hitler gave nationalism a bad name. Yeah, that, that was the worst thing he did. Was but, but, purpo- but purposefully trimmed yeah. the fact that it was a sarcastic response. Yeah. And it's like, you get the first off of like, I can't believe he's done this. Oh my God, he, yeah. he is clearly a Nazi. This, like... Young Labour member. This young Labour member. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they always end up being fucking Nazis, don't they? And, to be fair. Some, <laughs> a lot of them do. But, but. but it, was, it was trimmed out of context. And it just, all of this stuff kind of... You never are more aware of the power dynamics, as mm. you pointed out about the territory councillors on, on, on Question Time. You're never more aware of your own place in a power dynamic as to when this shit happens. Mm-hmm. For fucking years, people have been talking about holding Tories racists generally to account. Mm. And it's been met with free speech warriors yep. and all of that kind of shit. And... As soon as this comes out, something that was an obvious hatchet job, mm-hmm. obviously politically motivated, because they are on the right, he is on the left, therefore they're in conflict. It's like, 
deny it, you know, with them denying that any conflict ever happens like that. It's amazing how... Well, it's not amazing. There's, like, a lot of people who used to work for Guido's disgusting website. He has seeded his spores in a lot of other media organisations. Yeah. Can't remember, there was something about him uh, trying to sell weapons to the BNP? Yeah. Oh, or some some far-right group. Yeah. That was yeah. There was something like that. Because he's, he's an old... Um, Disco libertarian, yeah, um, acid house guy. That was yeah. that was what he was before he got into the old, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, so he's seeded his spawn all over the place, Allegedly. and like they all they all well rumors have been heard. Um, so <laughs> his spawn are all over the place, and they obviously retweet his shit um, because they've all been fully accepted into mainstream media. Yeah. But then it's the other ones as well that retweet it as well. And it's not the fact that it was wrong. That that, that is an issue, that they retweeted an obviously wrong story. Mm. But it's how many of them are willing to take a, a, an out-and-out fascist at face value. Because they always do it. But They like, need it. I mean, something. I think it was uh, Elvis Buonello mm-hmm. uh, on Twitter who pointed out that the mainstream media use guido as a screen for not getting sued because Mm -hmm. guido becomes the source Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter to them whether they whether it's true or not they don't need to do the thing they can just say oh well this was a source we reported from Mm -hmm. and the you can see it in the climb down as well that obviously guido didn't climb down because they don't have to no but the, the it was of, reported that it was, it was it was reported that it would no it'll end up getting reported the following day as allegations mm. or um, he has now he has since apologised for the tweet mm. because everybody fucking piled in on him yeah well they were talking about um, like the ten o'clock news yeah and it, that's it that's the only thing and you never feel more powerless and more outside that stuff mm. as to when you see someone who like frankly could be any one of us. Mm-hmm. Subjected to that kind of that kind of shit, and there's no recourse. All oh, the no. stuff about there's no chance of him being able to sue them. No, no. It would cost a lot of money well, and a lot of time. Well, he's got other to sue to someone because he's been suspended from his job. Yeah, and it's like when you realise that you're completely, you are potentially completely subject to that power. That has to have a certain effect on how you. How you how you view the world and how you view the media? Well, no wonder everybody fucking hates them. Yeah, well, it affects how you talk. Yeah, online as well. Like I, I'm quite careful. Mm. Like um, you know, I'm I'm sure eventually someone will dig up me earlier today saying that I think Symphony of the Night might actually be better than Bloodstained. Jesus um, Christ! Yeah, and I'm sure that I'll be fucking call Tom Harwood. <laughs> and that's it as well. You know what? Socialists be socialists be like. Oh, Bloodstained is better than Symphony of the Night. <laughs> but um, so. That's the other thing as well. So, like, the imam who may or may not be anti-Semitic, because mm-hmm. I, I haven't looked into it, I can't be asked to be honest. Um, I had a brief look, I, and uh, I look, look, I can't, care. I can't get in the totality of it because, of course, with any one of these scandals, there's all these kind of things flying yeah. around. He used the same level of language as a Ken Livingston. Yeah, that's too much. From what I saw, which yeah. is too much. Yeah. But it, it but also, also, you know. Is what it is. Rob Burley, who is the the guy who chooses these people to be on these shows, is uh, the Newsnight editor, isn't he? Yeah, he's on, he does a lot of and like yeah. Afternoon Live and all those yeah. things. He's had Marine Le Pen on. Yeah, he has Tom Harwood on all the fucking time. Yeah, um, and like so, if you if you're gonna have if your problem is like, oh no, I can't believe they let an anti semite on the BBC. For fuck's sake, they had Nick Griffin on. <laughs> yeah, but, you know they like, they, but it doesn't matter. No. 
because, because it's, it's all about because the whole point about like that's what people like um, Robbie Travers mm-hmm. and Tom Harwood before he was apparently accepted in. Mm-hmm. It's a velvet rope situation. Mm. You're behind the velvet rope, therefore you're one of them. Tom Harwood's yeah. been on politics programs enough now that he's behind the velvet rope. Yeah. There's no getting him out of there, and no. people will go. To, other people will go to bat for him yeah. in a kind of guild loyalty. Yeah. And if it's the absolute inability of them to look at themselves as a separate power structure mm. capable of brutalizing people's lives. Mm-hmm. These weren't MPs. These weren't like mm. things. They were people who wanted to ask a question mm. to the people who are going to be the next prime minister mm. with absolutely no democratic oversight, mm. no vote whatsoever no. for anybody other than like three, 0.3% of the population. Yeah. And the questions aren't even that harsh. They'll, no. no one asks like questions like, hey, Boris, why won't you acknowledge any of your children? How do, you f- how do any of you feel about being responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths? Exactly. And what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Like, it was a pathetic showing from them. Yeah. There are other reasons for that. Collapse of the Tory party, death of the Tory party, death of conservati- of this phase of conservatism, mm-hmm. whatever you want. But, like, the amount that they have been shielded, and the only thing I can think of is that the media are terrified. Perhaps some of the more far-sighted ones can see the imminent collapse of the Tory party, and they're terrified of having a different way of having to do this shit. Mm. They're terrified of having, frankly, we're going to have another... I think it's very likely we're just going to have hung parliaments for quite a while now because we're in that phase of of class recomposition. Yeah. There's no obvious vote-winning block to appeal directly to. It's a really weird... Corbyn's got the closest with, like, um, younger workers, yeah. uh, service workers and things like that. But even he hasn't got that entirely locked down. It's a weird thing because, like, you know... We would, have, we would have had a couple of elections by now. There would have been an election a while ago if it hadn't been for the Fixed Parliament Act. Yes. Which was possibly one of the most cowardly. And it's probably the one, one of the things that's fucked everything up. Yeah. Like, on, like not with regards to people's lives, but the reason why that that system is so... Even that was going from five years to every four years rigidly. Yeah, but it was changing the votes. And it, was, it was also changing the, the votes and the method by which you can trigger mm. a, a general election. But even that has a, a sneaky suspicion of, we'd like this to align with the US system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there's a, just a little bit of that turning it to four years. Like, why? Why yeah. four years? Why yeah. not five? I don't. I, you know, yeah, these arbitrary numbers are meaningless. They're meaningless unless you take it into the context of larger U.S. cultural hegemony. That's a that's a much larger question. But yeah, but yeah, it's um, it's gross. And then the final thing was last night with that um, that mansion house thing. Ah, uh, yes. The climate protester yeah. being assaulted by a man who has form for being a piece of shit, um, and then watching. Inexplicably, say inexplicably, because of course they did. Of course, the same old, same old people came out in defence yeah. of attacking a woman, um, because you know it's so. It, well, it's because it's okay to. I mean, because I, she's the I wrong haven't, kind of woman. I haven't seen the long video, but I was thinking about it today. Um, was it clear from the video that she, that they were protesting, like they were environmental protesters? In particular? oh yeah, they've been outside all day. Yeah, ah oh, right, they've been outside okay. all day. They're wearing red. Yeah. they're wearing red dresses. With sashes that say climate catastrophe or climate emergency. Of course, yeah. Um, and the bit that you've seen, that everyone's seen, um, the longer video shows the rest of them being like taken out by mm-hmm. security, and they're being they're being restrained in a way that like I have been restrained in a not a salty way. Yeah. Um, and the I can't remember her name, but she like veers round to get to the front to go to um, yeah. Philip Hammond, who's trying to make his speech, and as she does. 
she comes close to Mark Field. Is it Mark Field? Yeah, yeah. Mark Field. And um, yeah, he, he just attacks her with, and then there's like all the stuff defending it because like they'll be doing this thing where they 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 assume you're not going to watch the video, mm-hmm. so then they 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 fudge it a bit. Yeah. So they say things like, "What if she had a weapon? She was holding a pack of papers in one hand and a phone in the other." Yeah. So she didn't. She's a, she's a fucking small woman in a fucking dress. At, at, at some point, like, literally any... like, uh, Is it going to be the case that you're going to isolate all politicians from mm. ever appearing in public yeah. because everybody well, could have anything? Yeah, that's, that's, and, that's what I mean, like, there's But also the fucking bollocks, though, of like, oh, he reacted quickly. Like, Johnny Mercer, that fucking... It's like, the fuck, you know, the one who's assault. Oh, that military piece of shit. Yeah, the one who's like, oh, I didn't see anything wrong with that. It's like, no shit, you were given, like... You were given 20 quid to shoot a man. Yeah, they were, like, he's a he's very much a like not law and order. I mean, he is that, but he's very much a, a he calmed the situation. He assessed uh, tactically assessed the situation, yeah, like and he yeah he's gone hundred percent like Mac. Yeah, yeah. But um, if anyone thinks for one fucking second that Mark Field would have done that if it had been a bloke, nobody like, did it when that like, guy shouted at Theresa May at the no, no, they were just, they were just, they were just waiting. and that was quite a small bloke. Yeah, that was um that. That chad face yeah, he's guy. not a very good comedian, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, like, he was never going to do it if it was a bloke. But it's more, the thing is, it's less the thing that happened and him being an assaulty piece of shit. It's more the way that then the state just rounds to defend him. Yeah. He's like, he's resigned. He probably won't go to, he probably, she's not pressing charges. Mm. Because I don't, I don't blame her either, because already the Daily Mail have published where she lives and how many buddies she has. Yeah. Because... Of course, because yeah, that discredits like, her. She lives off the grid in Wales as a, with 31 Can bunnies. you trust a woman who lives in Wales with 31 bunny rabbits? Well, I mean, ultimately, that is what they're going for with their mm. with their readership, which is she lives off grid. That's what they actually mm-hmm. think. It's like she Taliban lives off, training video. She live, yeah, she lives off grid. With bunnies. Um, Taliban training camp. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was one thing I was thinking of today of obviously his, that, that reaction is obviously a very immediate one based on the fact that he judged the situation and figured he could physically overpower a much smaller person uh, and, a, video and, a, he and a woman. Her. Yeah. There's something else about it that I find with particularly environmental protesters, the, the how quick to anger people get with specifically uh, environmental protesters. Yeah. I think a lot, with all the Extinction Rebellion thing coming up, I thought a lot a few months ago about Swampy. Mm-hmm. and the reactions to it. And while first time there was a lot of... Um, he eventually became like a figure of fun. Mm-hmm. At first, there were really like genocidal, murderous mm-hmm. reactions to it and thinking about why that is. And it's like, it's because this affects everything you are. Mm-hmm. If you are a top-class bourgeois person mm-hmm. in any field, you've got a couple of cars you've got a suburban house. Mm. These things, the, the demands that environmental protesters are making in order to literally save humanity, <laughs> completely destroy your class position and your entire concept of you, of you as, a, as, a, mm. as a person in a class society. It destroys mm. that class structure completely. I mean, we mentioned it before yeah. that like, an envir- a green world is going to have to be entirely different. Mm. And like, it's something about the quickness and the anger that people you yeah. saw it with Julia Hartley Brewer when she talked about mowing down protesters yeah, on yeah. Um, Hammer, uh, yeah. Putney Bridge was it? Um, Wally Bridge yeah um, and that visceral reaction 
from the people who most steadily identify as like middle class or upper middle class mm. is in- extremely telling and I wouldn't put it past them to actually that actually to be like one of those triggering things that meant he felt he could take more liberties with somebody who was that much of a threat to him because mm. that's where the threat actually yeah. comes from than he would with another type of protester. Yeah, probably. Um, he'd written um, before about how we needed to have harsher rules and harsher laws to clamp down on these people. <laughs> these people. Yeah, because he'd already, he'd already like, which shows like that he's an angry man who I reckon saw her. So yeah, he'd like he basically. You'd seen his tweets where he was talking about like, um, like intimidating some girl, some young girl on a tube, but like. I get yeah, the impression it, that since it? the Extinction Rebellion thing, <laughs> he's been waiting for his his moment to be Billy Big Bollocks yeah. and put someone in their place. It's to be a hippie basher. Because yeah. that's how he views it. That's yeah. how they view that kind of thing. And the existential threat to themselves mm. as as a class is palpable mm. within the environment. And I couldn't resist it. I was listening to LBC a lot today and I've had enough of so many people telling this, doing the thing of what if it had been a man? What if she'd had a knife for age? There were so many people defending him. So many monsters. Okay, so for our main topic this week, uh, June. It is the 75th anniversary month of the D-Day landings Mm -hmm. in uh, June 1944. Um, The official celebration was uh, a bit earlier in June and was mostly focused on Trump's visit. But as with all war anniversaries now, uh, it comes with a combination of hot Brexit takes, fabulous merchandise, and baffling claims to authenticity. <laughs> um, I've got a few examples of s- just some of the the stuff. Not strong this year, because mm. let's face it, Brexit. Yeah. Um, there's strained metaphors aplenty in our, in our political uh, discourse. Um, but there were plenty of attempts to link the D-Day landings and the spirit of D-Day to contemporary politics. Well, yeah, because it was the British and the Americans. Mm-hmm. Or like, I, I, sorry, I used the, the language. The politically that. correct term for American is French. <laughs> it was the British and the Americans going in to save Europe. There was no. There was only British and Americans involved. <laughs> there was no. There was no. No one else helped. Nobody helped. Just Britain and America. I did watch. I watched Trump's speech uh, the day before when he talked about the Great Crusade to reclaim our civilization. And there's a very much, uh, you know, when you've got the two speeds of Trump of when he's coming, like just spinning off the top of his head, mm-hmm. and when he's had a speech written for him on formal occasions mm-hmm. by some fucking white supremacist lawyer. <laughs> yeah. um, and this was very much one of the latter category. <laughs> you know, reclaiming our I don't think he said Judeo-Christian but he definitely said reclaiming our civilization and it was like what the fuck are you talking about the Nazis are 100% a product of our civilization what did he think the, the idea is like and you know they all love the Nazis anyway <laughs> but also it's just like it's like what do you think the Nazis were doing they weren't like tearing up the like the Christian values of France replacing them with what if he wanted to know what the Nazis were about he just had to turn to the Queen and ask her <laughs> yeah she was there <laughs> she loved it she knew everything about it she had the scrapbook she had the, the Panini sticker book with all the all, <laughs> all the, of her favourite all Nazis. the prominent gauleiters <laughs> all of her favourite Nazis including the ones shiny Ro- <laughs> shiny Rommel yeah <laughs> she traded that um, uh, 
Yeah, this. Oh, it's. Uh... But yeah, that was that was the actual event. But obviously, everybody seeks to to link literally anything that yeah. happens in that week period mm. to D Day. So yeah. we had uh, the announcement they were charging over seventy fives for TV licenses. That mm. was a betrayal of D Day veterans. It was. Um, all of those D Day veterans, uh, the ones who were fifteen in nineteen forty four and would now be eighty eight years old. Look, my grandfather didn't refuse to fight in World War Two. To then have to pay for his TV license. To have if to he had died. To have to pay for Love Island. <laughs> well, actually, you wouldn't pay for Love Island. You know what I mean. I think, I think it counts. <laughs> have to pay for something shit on BBC. Yeah. Well, no, um, the license fee doesn't just go to the BBC. No, I know. It goes to Channel 4 and, a, and bit of, a little bit of ITV as well. well yeah, because otherwise, how are they going to be able to afford those fantastic trestle tables on Love Island? <laughs> are you saying that without the license fee, these trestle tables would be gone and they'd be eaten off their laps? <laughs> Oh God, it look. Okay, before we go, Love Island does look cheap. You've oh, never watched it. God. It always looks. I've super watched cheap. half an hour of it, and it's like yeah. I remember going through this with Big Brother, and yeah. like I don't know, I was oh, no, no, I no, was no. more into Big it Brother, then. They spend more money on it. No, Love Island, they will just put a drape over a trestle table in some Spanish farmer's garden, and it will be a nice view. But it's quite obviously just a shit trestle table and a bit of a salad. <laughs> they that the the profit margins on Love Island. Are Ridiculous. Living in London has changed you, Hugh. Time was you'd be satisfied with a trestle table in a Spanish farmer's <laughs> garden. And that would be it. A couple of sausage rolls, vegan sausage rolls on the table. All I'm saying is if they're going to convince me to be fingered on TV, <laughs> then I'm going to need more than a bit of salad on a trestle table. I mean, for calorie, for, for cat like nutrient. Well, yeah, I need nutrition. I'm a large any, guy. More than anything, yeah. It takes a lot to finger you. I should know. Um, <laughs> But anyway, yeah. Anyway. So, so you know, the Love <laughs> Island values that we fought for in TT. <laughs> um, it moved on to uh, talk of shutting down Parliament to pass uh, Brexit. That would betray D-Day veterans. That was something that Matt Hancock, former Conservative leadership candidate, said. An app entrepreneur. Um, obviously, this is not from this year, but Marc Francois saying, my father was a D-Day veteran. He never submitted to bullying by any German and neither will his son. <laughs> So he's always wanted the chance to prove himself against a German, Marc Francois. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the various takes of both Brexit of one finger up to the Germans mm-hmm. and the Remain takes, which are somehow worse, mm-hmm. which are, you know, Britain must not turn its back on the D-Day values that made us great in mm-hmm. Europe when we were going over to kill our European partners. Well, we Live, went... love <laughs> and bomb <laughs> in 27 countries. Look. It's part of the original founding document of the EU <laughs> that we have the right to firebomb beautiful old cities <laughs> full of civilians. <laughs> and if it hadn't been for those EU values, um, I'd, yeah. it's, 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 oh <laughs> it's so pained. It's like it's it ties in with that bullshit of you know. It's like ah, because of the EU, we've had no war in Europe. Not a <laughs> single word in anger has been spoken <laughs> since forty-five. <laughs> Nothing else, no other interference, no complicated, painful process of decolonization. Nope. Nothing. Nope. Um, and obviously, aside from the political stuff, there's uh, widespread cultural derangement around anything to do with any war anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, we had various events across the country um, in Hammersmith at St Paul's Gardens, where the Normandy, Normandy landings were planned, there will be a commemorative anniversary gathering in the gardens with military vehicles, wartime music, food and drink, and a children's obstacle course <laughs> to represent the obstacles that Montgomery and Eisenhower had to climb in order to, mainly, uh, <laughs> in order to plan D-Day. Mainly, 
a hatred and unwillingness to help out the Soviets who were fucking dying in their millions. <laughs> it's just, it's just, so you got this obstacle course with like lots of like paddling pools, so like to to give you to give the kids the kind of experience of like running across beaches being shot at, yeah. while in the background they have some Russians begging for help that they're supposed to ignore. <laughs> they put blinders on them. Um, in Lincolnshire, they had a whole weekend of uh, commemoration. Uh, two major outdoor concerts at the IBCC, the International Bomber Command Centre, mm-hmm. uh, featuring the stars of the 40s with a wide range of tributes to Vera Lynn, George Formby, Gracie Fields, uh, Frank Sinatra, um, and Flanagan and Allen. <laughs> you know the two, um, the, the ones who did that thing about... Uh, how great it is. like it's a satirical song, but yeah. how great it is to be English yeah. and yeah. how the Welsh are more the Welsh are more monkey than man. I think that's Flanagan and Allen, isn't it? It's the one that um, Armstrong and Miller do the piss take of. Is it? Oh, they're, well, the thing is, they're all the kind of same. Yeah, it's that kind of like musical yeah, yeah. musical shit. Yeah. Right? Um, sketches from it ain't half hot. And Dad's Army will amuse and entertain. Bring your picnic blankets, chairs, and relax while celebrating the best forties music. Oh my god. Um, to be fair. I do really like ear-shattering drone music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which was the main thing that you heard in the 40s, which was just like, boom, boom. <laughs> yeah, I could be into that. Yeah, I'm into this this new band, V1. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bit fast, don't look into them. <laughs> in, uh, in Portsmouth, uh, you could take your take the whole family for a family day out. Fantastic. Find out how you would survive as a child growing up in the Second World War in this fun, energetic, fact-filled show for all the family. I would would you be. stay with your family in the city with thousands of bombs falling every night? Or be separated <laughs> from them and evacuated to somewhere safer in the country? Be sexually assaulted in the countryside. <laughs> how would you cope on a diet of powdered eggs and spam as food supplies get low and rationing takes hold of the country? Discover how to keep alive and well as a child in this dangerous time. As thousands of soldiers prepare to invade Europe for D-Day, will the war ever be over? Running time one hour, recommended age six plus. This show features loud sound effects, strobe lighting and a smoke machine. <laughs> Jeez. You never think about the loud sound effects in World War Two, and it's, no. it's, it's never, uh, it's never really... Machines. I mean, it's like having a Dolby Atmos cinema all the time. It is. It's, uh, it's great. My favourite one of, the, of these events, uh, Guy Martin's D-Day landings. Guy Martin is that northerner with the sideburns guy who really loves tanks. Yeah, and isn't he like a... He, he, has, he has the look and manner of a Speedway failure. Yeah, he's like... A speedway also ran. He's like uh, mechanical Kath Kidson. Okay. For the uh, make-do-and-mend generation, post-austerity generation. Uh, Guy Martin honours the brave paratroopers of 75 years ago. To mark the 75th anniversary of D-Day, petrolhead Guy Martin pays his own tribute to the paratroopers who spearheaded the invasion by leaping out of a Dakota transport plane over northern France. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? Did he do it with a gun? (laughs) (laughs) Did he do it while people were shooting at him? Because I've got to say, if I was a D-Day veteran and I think... You know, all of the sacrifices, all of the, Did all of look? my friends, all of my brothers <laughs> who died on the beaches of Normandy, face down, bleeding from all their bullet wounds. Oh, don't worry, Guy Martin, some fella off the telly is going to jump out of a plane in what appears to be mocking disdain <laughs> for the actual level of sacrifice. And then pretend to shoot a German teenager who just wants to go home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... 
of course, alongside the events, there always has to be the merch table. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And D-Day is no exception. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a... I (laughs) I actually found this. Somebody on my Facebook uh, was advertising the fact that they'd They'd bought a load of these things. Um, <laughs> it's therebutnotthere.org.uk. Mm-hmm. All proceeds go to Help for Heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there but not there, you may remember them from the 100-year anniversary of World War One, and they are the creators of the 750-pound, six-foot aluminium outline of a World War One Tommy. <laughs> it's great for garden parties, for putting in your garden, or for just having in your garden and looking at that's so weird. Um, like, I've been vetoed getting, like, cutouts of people. <laughs> and, like... Yeah, but to be fair, they were for nefarious purposes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I constantly get vetoed of getting body pillows. <laughs> um, yeah, so the people who brought you the 750 aluminium Tommy comes the D-Day 75 boot print. <laughs> boot print stickers, £4.80. These bootprint stickers commemorate all those who died on D-Day and in the ensuing Battle of Normandy, as well as those who have died in subsequent conflicts, hmm, mm-hmm. and help raise funds for ex-servicemen and women. We hope to see these bootprints appearing around the UK in public and private spaces. Where are they hoping to see them in private spaces? Sorry, this may be more of a copywriting thing yeah. than some large philosophical disagreement I have with them, but yeah. the copywriters on these things need to have a bit of perspective. Yeah, well, you know, they're not working for anybody. <laughs> Um, whether applied internally or externally, these can be placed in the footsteps of those who died in previous conflicts, allowing us to commemorate the fallen and bring them back into the communities they left behind. Uh, I, uh, as kind of pagan ritual to buy knickknacks, commemorating the people who died and bringing them back. Yeah. But isn't it supposed to be a heroic sacrifice? So if you brought them back, does that mean they're bringing the Germans who they, all the Germans they killed back as well? Mm. All the Nazis? Um, I'm going to buy a load of those boot stickers and put them all around our bar. <laughs> but, but don't worry, you can buy... You know, the honourable conflicts that they fought. <laughs> Take some to Malaya. They did say other conflicts. Yeah. That's always the bit that kind of sticks, yeah. doesn't it? There were people who, who... Sticks like a boot print to your front window. Yeah, there were people who fought in World War Two who, who probably were at D-Day who then went straight to... Uh, yeah. Straight to the East to start killing people. <laughs> to, like, where was it where they um they released... Yeah, it's where they released all those Japanese prisoners of war then turned them on the communists that yeah, were they, they, them. they armed them and then turned them on uh, communist guerrillas in Malaysia. Yeah. 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 So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honour that with these dicky footprints. <laughs> um, but if Fucking you, horrible. If, I hate... I hate the army... I hate the British. (laughs) Well, look, if you want a more traditional kind of commemoration for your love for the British Army, Mm -hmm. you can get a boot print plaque. A plaque? Uh, It it is a... uh, Yeah, uh, you can get a plaque with one of these boot print stickers framed in it. Uh, There are three options for them. Okay. You can have them engraved with a random British and Commonwealth name. The, featuring the rank, name, and decorations of one of the British and Commonwealth service men and women who died during D-Day. <laughs> Just, whose uh, name do you want on it? Any limited, of them, I love them all. This will be a limited edition, one of 22,763. Oh, because of how many people died. Because how many people died. Or you can get an American name. No. Uh, that's a limited edition of one of 10,945. Or you can have it blank. <laughs> Just to get inscribed with whoever. My name. You know, yeah. like when people buy football shirts, but they're a name on it. <laughs> Look at the steel D-Day valor. <laughs> I did it. I was there. <laughs> um, 
Of course, going along with this are the are the slightly softer media pieces mm-hmm. uh, commemorating D Day, which is has been a weird. There's been a weird spate recently of like troop love. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sun ran an article saying portraying the D Day veterans who are dwindling in number, obviously getting older, uh, going back to the beaches of Normandy, and they portrayed it this way. D-Day heroes today wept for their mates gunned down on the beaches of Normandy as the world paid tribute 75 years on from the Allied invasion of France. Some of the last surviving veterans from Operation Overlord shed heartbroken tears at memorial services on both sides of the English Channel for comrades who fell on June the 6th, 1944. This was alongside D-Day veteran Thomas Cuthbert, the man who chatted up Melania Trump when he was introduced to them uh, along the, along the like, like meeting Donald yeah. Trump, meeting the American president and everything. Um... And at the same time you pointed this out, the winner of Britain's Got Talent this year was it a was, Chelsea pensioner. Yeah. Um, who sang heart, heartbreaking odes to his dead wife. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't in D-Day, but he was accorded all the respect of a D-Day veteran, there was despite a, the fact that he mainly fought in Korea. <laughs> there was a D-Day guy who did a song, um, there was a song that he wrote about the people who died at Normandy mm. and all the proceeds went to building a British only memorial in Normandy, <laughs> which is really British. <laughs> Segregating history. Yeah. Segregating memory. Yeah. Um, but that was, that one really, that one's a weird one. Cause it's like, it's a song that he wrote and he did it to a tune of, and like, I remember it was on the news or something and he just described it as some Irish tune. <laughs> Oh, and it was. It's like yeah, it it, it's it's this guy. Sorry, I had it. I actually had it down. Um, D-Day veteran Jim Radford. That's the one. Um, and you, yeah, you pointed this out to me, and I read the story, and there was something about it. I don't know. I'll just read out the description yeah. I've got here. In 1944, Jim Radford was a 15-year-old galley boy serving with the Merchant Navy on the Empire Larch. On the morning of the 6th of June, his first deep-sea trip took him to Normandy to help build the Mulberry Harbour, allowing the Royal Navy to transport personnel, vehicles and supplies onto the beaches. The channel's hardly deep-sea. 25 years later, Jim returned to find a very different scene. Children were playing where soldiers had died, and Jim was moved to tears. This is in a paper, by the way. Um, His emotional song tells that story. And it's like, right, look, now I know, obviously, D-Day, like like the beaches of Normandy in all of June, probably, 1944, not exactly a safe place to be. No. But, (laughs) but, I bet bet the pop screen loves that, but, um, 15-year-old galley boy on a ship Mm. helping to build a harbour. I mean, yeah, obviously... Or it's loads not, of people it's not storming way. the beaches. It's, it's not, not storming the beaches. It's not even pretending to parachute. Like Does Guy there Martin. have to be a similar kind of like moral, res- like moral respect mm. for that kind of shit? Again, not diminishing it's, the fact that yeah. he's probably definitely in danger. It's weird. It's getting to the but point. it's getting think, to that point. I think it's, it's getting straining. to the point because so few are left. Yeah, it's straining at the limits of what what the way that they're trying to apply the same story mm-hmm. with the same outcome to increasingly fewer people mm-hmm. and people who were kind of on on the side mm-hmm. of, of that thing. Yeah. There's also a weird framing of it that that these were all volunteers. Yeah. There's yeah. a weird there's a, a weird thing like like um you know when you see it with like the black book of communism and they the, the deaths are ascribed to communism and they ascribe all those deaths of they people as, they fighting. They ascribe the all of the deaths in World War Two. Yeah. 
as um because you know Stalin forced them all to fight the Nazis, mm. and whereas the D Day veterans were not conscripted soldiers because apparently we didn't have conscription during World War Two. <laughs> that was not a thing. It's like no, it was the same. It was literally the same. It was conscription. It, yeah, of course it was. Why would it not be? Of course it like yeah. It's um, it's just this this weird way of framing that rubs me up the wrong way. Of like yeah, like they didn't choose to be. If they could have just been sitting at home, they would have. It's it's more that I would have. It's something that's happened over time that when there were more people who participated in D Day and the Second World War alive, hmm. there was a kind of. Uh, maybe you know, maybe I'm overthinking this, but it was a kind of a, a calmer way of of demonstrating it. It was more formal, mm. um, and we talked about this in I think we had episode seventy five was about World War One and about how it's how the commemoration has changed. Mm. But um, it was weird. I was watching. It, it's gotten a lot more sentimental, yeah, and very much trying to plant certain emotions when you're thinking about passing of this generation Mm -hmm. so they're constantly emphasizing how emotional these men are at people dying which was not the case Mm. of the way it was reported years ago um and it was a weird thing because i was watching running man the other day Mm -hmm. and i was reminded of the bit where you know uh arnie kills um Mm sub-zero the hockey player He's the first stalker. The sumo hockey player. The sumo hockey player, yeah. He kills Sub-Zero. He kills Sub-Zero, and that's the first stalker who he's who he's killed. Yeah. And the tone of the presenter of, um, what's his name, uh, Damien, mm-hmm. the tone of the presenter changes from a really uproarious kind of bloodthirst mm. to this cod mourning kind yeah. of... Yeah, like uh, the lights change. In wrestling, it would be called putting on the Owen voice. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Of a... A, a solemnity and in, yeah. in the running man's case it's a mock solemnity about and he's talking about words can't describe all the things that we're thinking and feeling right now and mm. obviously our hearts go out to his family mm. and then we'll be right back and then goes back into the same kind of thing and it just reminds me of something that um pretty sure hannah arendt said about um uh, fascism that the swing between brut- like being able to to kind of describe brutality and um, like necessary violence, the swing between that and kitsch sentimentality mm. is a really important uh, feature of of fascism. Mm-hmm. Like not saying that D Day is inherently fascist. None of the D Day veterans, well, maybe not. None of them were fascists. I'm sure, proportionally, some of them must have been. Mm-hmm. But like, it's not an inherent fascist thing to 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 be a D Day veteran or anything like that. But I think the fact that it's changing this sentimental tone about things is certainly a sign that there's something fash going on with the betrayal yeah, of D-Day. There's a definite link. There's like a whiff, like the way it feels like to me is that they're trying to they they're constantly trying to draw this connection. They were doing it with with, um, with last year's War Christmas as well. Yeah. Of drawing a connection between people who died in Flanders fields or people who died in mm. the beaches of Normandy to soldiers who killed people in Afghanistan. Yeah. Or yeah. were committing war crimes in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Like there's draw, trying to draw like a direct line between these people as if they they are the same people the same people the same motivations and the same. Yeah, I mean that's been the main ideological function of uh World War 2 and and mm. D-Day since since then because I mean you got to think why about... we get so angry about it. It's not <clears throat> yeah. like it's not because it's not because I specifically hate that old man who fought in Normandy in 40 in the 40s. Yeah. Like you c- it 
you can even see it in, in, in the kind of like uh, positioning of especially the Iraq wars mm-hmm. um, think about the first episode of uh, Generation Kill mm-hmm. it's a load of troops arranged in a, in a, in a, a camp in the desert in uh, Saudi or wherever they are mm-hmm. waiting to invade Iraq and that kind of um, it, close examination and framing of a load of soldiers waiting to invade somewhere has been a very common feature of mm. Western wars because it's always the West invading somewhere else, going into somewhere else. It's never standing on the battlements waiting for the tide to come in. That's yeah. relegated to kind of almost more racist kind of fantasies yeah. about the other and about the, the East and the Orient. When you're talking about mimicking D-Day, every invasion is always D-Day. It's always, mm. you know... That, that kind of thing. And it's they've always been able to talk about World War Two in different terms than World War One. You can't weaponize World War One to become this um persuasive argument. Mm. The theme of World War One is injury, mm. disfigurement. All the memorials are people sleeping, people mm. mourning. There's a you know, you you know what World War Two is. It's it's triumph, it's it's yeah. victory through through unity. It's why like um People, I think there's there's more like war history guys who love World War Two in this country than World War One. Like World War Two history guys are like fucking ten a penny. There's yeah. so many. I wouldn't say they're the worst war history guys. I was actually thinking about this. Who is? I've got a tier list right, okay. of war history guys. All right. Okay, just as a little aside. Okay. Wait, like rating the war history guys. <clears throat> okay, so top tier. These are these are. Guys, and they mostly are guys who are really into a war, mm-hmm. right? Uh, top tier, 30 years war guys, mm-hmm. German peasants rebellion guys, mm-hmm. uh, Spanish civil war guys, romance of the three kingdom guys. Yeah. Yeah, that's top tier. Yeah. Good tier, English civil war guys, October revolution guys. Okay. Yeah. Mid tier, Vikings guys, uh-huh. World War One guys, Napoleonic war guys. Uh-huh. Can go either way with this lot. Yeah. yeah? Bad tier, World War Two guys. Mm-hmm. American Civil War guys. Yes. Roman guys. 100%. Yeah. Devil tier. <laughs> Spartan guys. Falklands guys. Are there Falklands guys? There are 100% Falklands guys. Dan Hodges. Dan Hodges did a whole board game on it. Battle for the South oh, Atlantic, God, he did, did he? Didn't he? Yeah, they're the worst guys. Oh. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that I agree with that tier list. Yeah. Yeah, but... um. Yeah, in many ways, like, although they're the two kind of wars are linked, World War One and hmm. World War Two. Um, World War Two seems to be the war that they would have liked World War One to have been. Yeah. In hindsight. Yeah. Because it, it's so easy to kind of, it's so easy to paper over and flatten the territory around World War Two. It's it's way easier than it is with World War One. You have obvious strikes. You have the obvious aftermath of World War One with the rise of kind of labour and and working class movements, mm-hmm. like the militarisation of, of working class mm-hmm. movements of both both left and right mm. after the war. Um, but World War Two is all victory through unity. Mm. Everyone was pitching in. Everyone was doing the same. You don't have a readily identifiable class that you can blame for the war, mm. because you know people didn't want blame. They no. wanted to take credit for it. Yeah. Um, and it kind of forms this 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 myth that not only papers over class differences, but kind of forms its own kind of myth of Britishness. Mm. You know, and there's something about kind of examining World War Two as like the finest hour of an old country that's yeah. been incredibly damaging to to like the British national story. Yeah, if you like, um, 
because it's a like all of all of the lessons that you get from World War World War Two are all like rediscovery. So like they cast back from World War Two to like Dunkirk, mm-hmm. the Dunkirk spirit, or the even further back to like the Spanish Armada spirit or the Trafalgar spirit. Mm-hmm. If all of those, this isn't like say like Spanish Civil War where you can get a whole new um, like national story out mm-hmm. of that out of that conflict, or like yeah. Irish independence, Indian independence, mm-hmm. um, uh, like those kind of fights forged the myth of a new country. Yeah. These were the pinnacle of an old country. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, and it, it always emphasizes the kind of like uniqueness, the unique reaction of Britain. And these, this was uniquely British. It could not have happened to anyone else. We could definitely never have mounted a seaborne invasion. <laughs> could definitely never have survived bombing <laughs> as opposed to every other country that does that in mm. the same way, you know? Yeah. And like, yeah, it papers over the fact that like during the war there were discontinuities around class. It wasn't that everybody united around the same, the, the same thing. There were strikes. Yeah. There were strikes in like Glasgow, Liverpool, London. There was a big minor strike in Kent that mm. got um, people prosecuted under anti-strike legislation. Mm. Um, and you know, people like you talk about like the morale of people during like the Blitz and things like that. People were scared. That mm. always tends to get kind of understated and, and not appreciated by this by this myth that turns it into one story that was true for everybody. Yeah. And this national identity and the way that it kind of like papered over those class class conflicts mm. also is like inherently bourgeois mm. as well. All of it is um according to apparently according to one film historian, every film of the of, of the war um, had characters emphasising three qualities, which was a sense of humour, tolerance, and emotional restraint. Most notably, um, the citizenry being encouraged to conduct themselves respectably, hmm. as in like a middle-class yeah. idea of what respectability was. Um, yeah. That stretched to like not getting drunk in work hours, something that the middle-class have always been fucking mad about, yeah. um, up to policing working-class women and making sure that they were... At, uh, Adhering to like sexual morality, yeah, like a clean quote unquote clean sexual morality, yeah, um, and like yeah, viewed through a class lens, it didn't. World War Two doesn't leave in the same way as World War One. It doesn't leave an upper class for you to kind of blame. You know, it was based on a, a, a unity of classes. You could pick your own individual heroic stories, mm-hmm. but unlike World War One, they kind of come as a bundle. You know, they yeah. all come as. These what these stories are part of a big whole. Um, one of the main problems I have with World War Two is that it does kind of make everything into one story. Hmm. You know, like you end up having a direct ideological function happening because of all those stories about people saying you're not conducting yourself like a D-Day veteran. Hmm. You know, it became actually a very, like, this year I noticed it especially, it became like a really personal thing. Mm. Like, there are loads of people on, on Facebook or in things of saying, you're not, you, if, if you had been in charge of D-Day, it never would have happened. Yeah. Using it as a personality trait yeah. to be a veteran, yeah. which is obviously part of the militarization society anyway, but like, really, really sketchy. Mm-hmm. Because of course, as... I said a minute ago, it's all in the past. It was the peak. It was the pinnacle. Mm. Everything else is a decline. The empire goes. The the sense of Britain like being powerful goes. Mm. And 
how long before that kind of thing becomes a stabbed in the back myth? Yeah. You know? Well, the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> Take it away, those free license fees. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's like, it's, 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 yeah. it's almost like a, a, like a beta testing of, of um, stabs in the back myths of our greatest generation. <laughs> There's a very neoliberal aspect to the kind of personal touch of it as well. Mm. Because it's like, these people went through the hardest thing you could ever possibly do. Mm. The most challenging, the most character-forming thing. And that's like fucking neoliberal stuff. It's yeah. taking your base personality and subjecting it to the harshest competition, to the harshest environment, um, forges like diamond, like putting... Mm. Uh, rocks under pressure creates sure diamonds. Each and every one of those D-Day veterans would be the ama- an amazing um, manager of any company. <laughs> yeah, they'd be amazing. I'm sure they all adapted perfectly well to, to life civilian afterwards. life. <laughs> yeah, especially when you know the widespread mutinies that were in the <laughs> British Army in the East and here, which are I have never seen covered. Yeah, there no, was actually doesn't. I was actually looking it up. There was a uh, it was called the Indian the Royal Indian Air Force Mutiny in 1946. Mm. They elected workers' councils. Mm. Because they weren't demobbing fast enough, mm-hmm. you know that I have never seen that covered in any in any documentary no. or any kind of popular history. It's it's part of this flattening process, this combining process of pushing one particular story mm. about about World War Two, and I mean ha- carrying that heritage forward in a fucking old country, in a dying country with a dying system, which is what this is. Mm. Um, it. Carrying heritage like that always puts an obligation on the present to act on those lessons in certain ways that are never fully defined mm. except by the media that put them out there. Yeah. By the media that you're expected to consume if you're interested at all in, in World War II history. It comes with all of this other stuff to consume and the imp- the moral impetuses of those things. Are, they're only getting heavier each year mm. as more and more of the original voices kind of kind of die off. Yeah. And you um, see, like the way that the me, like the way the same old people always round on veterans who don't toe the line as much, because yeah. like most of them, understandably, are just quiet old men. Yeah. Um, but like, who also don't want, maybe in particular, don't want to go into the granular detail of taking their grandchildren or great grandchildren to see what it was like in the yeah. war. But like, why are you subjecting people? Why is it important that people have the direct experience? Yeah. Of of those things when you would actually kill people in order to avoid your children in real life having to go through that shit. Yeah. So what lesson? What lesson and what morality are you trying to kind of like like put on them? Yeah. You know. But you know, like um, with Thingy Harry, Harry's um, I forgot his surname. Windsor. Harry Windsor. Prince Harry. No, the veteran who died not long ago. Oh, um, Sugar. Can't think. Yeah, but um, because he's very much a, he was. Very like anti-war, yeah, anti-Tory austerity stuff, and the 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 people who like lift up all the like D-Day as being this amazing thing, mm. and World War Two being this pinnacle and so great and like mm. the greatest generation, all fucking bitched about him. Yeah, who who among like the veterans, if they had any kind of stake in mm. what World War Two would be remembered as. How many of them wanted to define, like, Britain, not by the first war, like Irish independence or shit like that, but how many wanted to define the future of Britain as being dependent on the last war, mm-hmm. on the war to end all wars? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it's backwards looking, but it's also, 
incredibly like revanchist. It's yeah. it's the desire to get that back because it will never be as good again. Yeah. Which is that's 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 crazy. That you can't you can't have a national discourse like that. No. Which is why like histo- his- historical wise, like maybe this is one of those okay, if you were gonna change it, okay, mm. you said what's wrong with it, if you were gonna change it. Maybe this is one of those occasions where the officially decided upon truth kind of matters less than actually having the great 2019 bugbear authenticity. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's better to actually hear the stories from those who lived through it, mm-hmm. even if it's, it's, it's going to be patchy, it's going to be unreliable, it's going to be contradictory, yeah. because that's literally what life is. Yeah. Um, that's going through that experience was disconcerting, chaotic, mm-hmm. and difficult to, to manage. Yeah. And to retain a decent kind of narrative of yourself and of society in general going through that. Um, but but piecing those together to more accurately try and sum up the whole thing is better than just solely receiving D-Day as this like grand sweep of history. Yeah. Because that grand sweep can be used and has been used for just so much other shit. Yeah. You know? Um it might also help to undermine some of the more pernicious myths about D-Day that, for instance, Britishness is inherently opposed to Nazism or mm-hmm. fascism. Um, a lesson that quite a lot of modern discourse would probably do quite well to take on board. Yeah. You know, it's not... Like, you could say that that's, like, maybe depoliticizing it because, like all wars, World War Two was political. Mm-hmm. It had strikes, it had class conflict, and talk like trying to reduce it to individual stories. I don't think he's trying to depoliticize it, but it does kind of like it relates to something really excellent that I find more and true every day, more and more true every day. Something that Joe Kennedy said um, about towns: towns are not a metaphor, mm. you know. And it's worth kind of treating it with that same thing of D-Day and World War Two are not metaphors mm-hmm. for what you want. Yeah, you know. Maybe actually, if we take it in its particularity, in it, in it, in its weirdness, maybe you could salvage something worth using. That's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us at wdtatw underscore podcast. You can follow me at bm bergamo and follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said to cut my dick.